The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Good afternoon, listeners. At least it is still afternoon in California, and uh, it is Monday. And I'm your host of the Space Show, David Livingston. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to be off and running to the moon in a few minutes. But first, a couple of uh, announcements. This is a regular week on the Space Show. So that means today, Tuesday, Hotel Mars on Wednesday, Friday and Sunday, we have all Space Shows. No holidays, no times off, no nothing. We're back to totally normal. And I'm very, very happy to make that announcement. Our toll-free number is available today for those of you who would like to talk to our guest today, Dr. Joshua Banfield. Uh, that toll-free number is 1-866-687-7223. No call screeners, let the phone ring, and I'll bring you up on air as quickly as possible. You can also use email, and that is drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. You can also post comments for our guest on our blog, and if you do that during the live show, I will get the comment and can read it on the air. To do that, go all the way over to the far right on our homepage, and you'll see upcoming show menu bar, and uh, we're the first show listed, and that is also the archive page for this particular program. So open it up, and uh, as uh, in posting on the blog for the archive, all the way down at the bottom, you can offer comments and questions or anything else you might want to add within reason. And if you do that, as soon as you hit the send or the post button, I will get your message and can integrate it and bring it up on the air. The toll-free number is our preferred way of communicating with our guests, uh, but either the blog or email um, are fine. And again, the toll-free number is one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, and email is drspace at the space show. So while you're at our website, thespaceshow.com, so do note that um, uh, we have a menu in the upper left and a couple of key things there in support. You will find our logo wear store with Cafe Press. You will also see listen live in that upper left menu. So this tells you how to listen to a live space show program. All of the archive programs on our website as uh, compressed MP3s and then how to listen to our podcast, uh, regardless of the device you have. And, and if you get stuck, I'll do my best to help you. But uh, I know iPhones and, and iPads best of all, but if you have something else, I'll do my best to help or get help for you. And then um, in addition, we have Alexa, and the TuneIn player is embedded on our website. 
for those of you that want to use Alexa to hear our podcast. They're in the podcast format for Alexa. So um, also we have a website newsletter. You'll see that center right on our homepage. So do remember that the website newsletter is posted fresh after the Sunday show ends. So it is fresh for the entire week, and it gives the details of what we're broadcasting during the week. If you scroll down, you'll see all of the programs we have planned, plus their dates for uh, the future, and we're booking into the close of second quarter 2018. And guest suggestions and feedback are always welcome, so do keep that in mind. And if you want the email newsletter sent to you, which is very, very short, it won't clutter up your email box, it goes out at 6 a.m. Monday morning, and if you want me to send that to you, please make sure I have your email address. Um, to me, the most important part of the website is center right again for supporting the space show. So remember, we are a nonprofit 501c3 with one O-N-E, giantleapfoundation.org, and we're listener-supported. So if you like the kind of programming we do and the guests that we have, uh, then do support us and your contributions do keep us on the air. Remember, as a 501c3 nonprofit, if you pay federal U.S. taxes, you get a tax deduction for your gift. And if you pay California taxes, you get a California deduction as well because we are what's known as a public benefit corporation in California. So if you have any questions about any of that, visit our parents' site, which controls and owns the space show, one one giant leap foundation.org that is our 501c3 be happy to answer any questions you might have or, or provide any additional information to you the best way to reach me always is through email dr space d-r-s-p-a-c-e at the space show.com uh, i do want to point out we're on the 60 minute format today so um i'm going to mention and thank our sponsors i'm not going to read their messages uh, so for the first segment, um, our sponsors uh, are the Space Development Network, and that is at spacedevelopment.org. Also the Space Symposium with their 34th symposium coming up in Colorado, uh, April 15th through the 19th. And then the Integrated Space Plan, and uh, their website is thespaceplan.com. Orbital ATK is a sponsor as is AIAA, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and then Celestis, uh, the uh, only provider of uh, memorial spaceflight services uh, any place, as far as I know. And uh, we appreciate all of our sponsors, and we thank them for being with us. Uh, we would not be doing the space show without their sponsors. So we have one sponsorship position left for website sponsors and, and sponsors in general. Uh, you get a banner ad going across the website, which you can change anytime you want. And on full-length shows, you get a 60-second or less message read by me. You get to create the message, but I read it on air. And on shorter shows like today, the 60-minute format, uh, I thank you by name. So if you're interested in being a sponsor, please contact me at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Joshua Banfield, and I'll tell you about him in just a minute. But a couple of weeks ago in uh, one of my searches for new guests and exciting new topics, I noticed a paper that he was the lead author on. 
uh, widespread distribution of OH, H2O, on the lunar surface inferred from spectral data. So I read the paper, and uh, it is, by the way, on our blog. You can uh, access the paper and download it. And um, I said, you know, this is a keeper. we got to talk about this on the space show. So um, I got a hold of uh, Dr. Banfield, and uh, that's how we're doing today's program. Uh, Joshua Banfield is a, a research guy, and his research is focused on the processes that have formed the crust and regolith of Mars, the Moon, and Earth analogs. He uses infrared and visible spectral and imaging data returned from orbiting spacecraft and landers to determine the mineralogical, thermophysical, and morphological properties of planetary surfaces. Josh has been involved with spacecraft planning, operations, and science activities for Martian and lunar missions since 1995. He is a geologist by training and, as such, likes rocks. I urge you to download and read his paper if you've not already done so. Dr. Banfield, welcome to the Space Show. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me, David. Um, a real pleasure. And uh, why don't you give us an introduction to your research and uh, this particular paper? Why Why do it? Why, what was the interest or the motivation for it? Yeah, um, in I guess in order to talk about it, I want to maybe set the stage a little bit as to the, sort of the fundamental problem that that you know we're we're interested in here on the moon. And um, if you're paying attention to a lot of the the kind of science results that have been coming out recently on the moon, there's lots of talk of water, and that water can form in a number of different ways via solar wind or uh, introduction via comets or meteor. Uh, or asteroids, or could have been what's termed magmatic or juvenile water. Basically, it was in the mantle of the moon when it first formed and is um, still there. And so in order to better understand this, we we have the lunar samples from Apollo and from the Luna missions, uh, and we have the remote sensing data from orbiting spacecraft. And uh, both have been pretty essential in terms of, of determining what, where that water is located and uh, how, it, how it got there. And so the study that uh, we completed just recently and published is focused on uh, mostly the remote sensing data. And this goes back to um, the Moon Mineralogy Mapper. It's a spectrometer that was on the uh, Indian Chandrayaan-1 orbiter. It was a built by JPL and it's a U.S. operated instrument, um, but was hosted by um, the Indian Space Agency on their orbiter. And that was in uh, operation, I believe, around 2008. It lasted for uh, six months to a year or so and collected a lot of data, um, maybe more than what we know what to do with. Um, and the interesting thing, or one of the big results that came out of this, was if the, the spectral range, if you will, goes out to about three micron wavelengths. So what we see with our eyes cuts off around 0.6. So this is much longer wavelengths than what we can see. And right around three microns or so, we have a, a fundamental absorption. And that basically it's just a... a almost a color, if you will, that's associated with the presence of water. 
And it's such a strong absorption that even tiny amounts of water, we're talking sort of on the order of uh, molecule-thick layers, uh, maybe a 10 or 20 molecule thick, will we'll even have a detectable absorption. So even if we have water present at very, very low concentrations, like much, much less than 1%, um, we can detect that, and we can detect that from orbit. So the one of the big results that came out of that mission was the presence of this very diagnostic absorption due to the presence of uh, what I'll call water, but more specifically, it could be due to uh, hydroxyl, which is just OH, or water itself, which is H2O. And that was seen uh, quite commonly in a lot of the data. Uh, so that was back in 2009. So why are we still talking about it today, which is uh, because it's it's more complicated than that, kind of like everything is. Um, if there's no question about the presence of water on the moon via this this measurement, but one of the questions that has arisen is uh, specifically what form is that water in? You know, how is it trapped in what materials? Is it um, only in the highlands versus the mare? Is it only at the poles? Is it only early or late in the day, or is it present everywhere? And in order to get at that, uh, there's a correction required for the data, and and that's where kind of the impetus for this paper came uh, comes from. Is we uh, we basically we're looking at the data in a way where we came up with a sort of a different method for correcting the data for for what's called thermal emission, and so this is where we're going to get into a little bit of arcane detail. Um, the out at three micron wavelengths. The lunar surface both has reflected light and emitted light. So the sun shines on the surface, it reflects, and is detected by the spectrometer, which is uh, kind of how most things work and how our eyes work. We look at reflected light. But it's also at a wavelength that's long enough and the moon is hot enough that not only are we seeing or measuring reflected light from the sun, but the lunar surface is actually emitting its own light. It's glowing. Um, you can think of like a hot burner on a stove. If it gets hot enough, it starts glowing at, at wavelengths that you can see with your eyes. But even if it's uh, cooler than that and you don't see anything with your eyes, it's still emitting light just at longer wavelengths that you can't see. So that's to correct for that emitted light is a very important part of this problem. So if you correct for it wrong or incorrectly, you will end up getting a uh, either filling in that spectral feature or um, overcorrecting it, making it deeper than it than it really is. And so you can end up with a different sort of absorption. And when you look at the distribution of that absorption across the lunar surface, you can end up making a misinterpretation of where that um, where that water actually is or is not. Um, so getting back to this problem of where is the water on the lunar surface, the original papers that were published back in 2009 showed uh, basically the water only only persisting at the poles or early and late in the day, in the lunar day. And so that, when you only, when you see water appearing in the morning, disappearing at noon, and reappearing in the afternoon and evening, 
it led researchers to conclude that this water is really dynamic. It might be forming on a daily basis or a lunar daily basis about once a month. And it might be quite dynamic in that it's migrating and moving around and could be a a source of water formation and and preservation at the poles even. Um, However, what we did with our work was came up with a different correction. And uh, we corrected for that thermal emission using what I'll call a thermophysical model, a thermophysical roughness model. And so that's, that's kind of where my expertise comes in. And... Um, I'll go on a little bit of another digression here, which is um, in order to understand the, the emission of the lunar surface, what the, the light being emitted from the lunar surface, we need to understand the temperature. And not only that, we need to understand the distribution of temperatures uh, because the surface is rough. And so you can imagine, you know, the, it's uh, early in the morning on the moon and you're at the equator and the sun just comes up over the horizon. And so you'll have uh, sunlit surfaces and shadowed surfaces. And there's a couple of unique properties of the moon relative to what we're used to on Earth that really makes this um, both an interesting and a very tricky problem. And it's due to a couple of things, one of which is there is no atmosphere. And so you're in a vacuum, and if I have a sunlit surface and I have a shaded surface on on the moon that sunless surface won't heat up the air around it because there is no air and transport that heat over to the shaded surface. So you have a a very hot surface and very cold surface, and you don't have a lot of ways of transporting the heat from one to the other. The other thing about the lunar surface is that it's extremely insulating. You can can imagine that fluffy, you know, lunar surface, the, the Neil Armstrong boot print, if you will. You can see it compresses, and it's, um, if you don't, if you leave it alone, it's this very fluffy and very highly insulating uh, material. In fact, it's more insulating than styrofoam. Um, and so, in that sense, once again, if you have a sunlit surface and a shaded surface, the heat won't conduct between those two surfaces very easily. So, if I have a sunlit surface and it's separated from the shaded surface by only about a centimeter or so you can maintain a temperature difference of about 200 degrees centigrade. Um, and so, and then on top of it, because of no atmosphere, because of this highly insulating surface, sunlit surfaces get really hot, shaded surfaces get really cold. So the upshot of all of that is when, I'm, when you're looking at a surface on, on the moon early in the morning or later in the day, and you want to know what temperature that surface is, it's not a single temperature. It's a bunch of temperatures. Um, and those temperatures vary by hundreds of degrees centigrade. And so that has a huge effect on the the emission that comes from the surface, which in due course has a big effect on how we correct for the data in the uh, near-infrared at those wavelengths where we see the water absorptions. You have a phone call already. Um, okay. Before you go further, let's see what your caller wants, okay? Sure. Uh, welcome to the show, caller. Who are you and where are you? Thank you for calling. Um, hi, this is Doug from Southern California. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to f- ask if uh, anything in your study neg- would negate or undo the findings of the L-Cross mission uh, showing, you know, 5.6% 
a concentration by weight of water in Cabeus Crater? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I, the work that I'm that we completed is related, but not that directly related. I don't think there's any question about the presence of water at the in the polar regions. Um, the the one place where they are related is in terms of how did that water get to the poles, and so the kind of the upshot of the research that we just published is that this this water that we're detecting across these vast regions of the moon is probably quite static. It's probably not migrating and probably not necessarily forming on a daily basis. And so in terms of the polar deposits, I don't think there's a question that they're they're actually present, but in terms of how did they get there, I think the implication is that um, maybe not via this the solar wind related process that that's the subject of our work. So, so yeah, in, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, in terms of uh, a a source of water, a resource for water, yeah, uh, for like a, a a base in the future, permanent base, um, wouldn't uh, you, you'd normally want to go to where the concentrations are the highest? So, doesn't the permanent shadow crater still remain the preferred location to access ice for a base? I. I would say yes, with a with an exception to that. Uh, I think it's. I think they are by far and away the highest concentrations of of water, especially in a relatively free form, um, that you'll find anywhere on the moon. Um, the The one problem with the high latitudes is just sort of the logistics of finding a site and and the temperature environment, um, where you have. Essentially, if you're exploring, you would need at least part of your exploration infrastructure to be in sunlight, whereas the, you know, the, the ice, by definition, is in a, a permanently shadowed region that's you know, about 90 Kelvin or, or below. So um, it would be nice to be able to find a reservoir of water that's at a lower, uh, a lower latitude. But, I, yeah, I agree. I think, it's, I think the polar regions probably retain the best the best opportunity for significant abundances. So have you read um, articles in, in sort of the popular press uh, referring to your study in which uh, essentially they, they say, well, it was thought that there was uh, large amounts of, of water, um, but it seems as though that uh, based on this latest study, maybe it's not, maybe there's not so much water. Um I- have you heard that? Have you read that, those articles? I'm not sure I've read that. Um, I'm not necessarily surprised if that was one of the conclusions that came from it. Um, I, I guess the way I'd put it is um, it, it's a complicated topic in that the water can be detected in sort of three different situations, in the minerals themselves, at the poles, and right at the surface. And I'm... Those three different those three things come from different measurements and different studies and sort of address different processes to some degree as well and so it, it's a it's a hard thing to keep straight um, I guess would be the way I'd put it I, I I certainly don't think the study that I presented would negate um, much of anything with respect to you know the polar deposits other than perhaps the the way in which the the deposits were migrated there in the first place. I understand. Yep. Thank you.
Thank you, Doug. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, listeners, that opens up the line. If you would like to give us a call, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Email is Dr. Space D R S P A C E at the Space Show dot com. Um, you want to pick up where you were before we took the call? Sure. Okay. And yeah, I, I welcome <laughs> interruptions too. Um, so. We, we came up with this new correction based on this very, uh, I don't know, detailed model of the temperature profile of the lunar surface. And the upshot was a different distribution in where we see this, this spectral feature attributed to water or OH. And specifically, what we're seeing now is that that, that feature is present at all local times and at all latitudes. and doesn't seem to vary with respect to... Uh, to composition or with respect to, you know, latitude or local time. So it, uh, the interpretation that what I would make based on the, that distribution is that we no longer, uh, if, you, if you trust this new correction, you no longer need to invoke this migrating dynamic environment where water is forming constantly um, and, and migrating to the poles. Um, and, and so that that has a couple of implications. Uh, and the other one other detail of this of this study has been this isn't work that that we did, but based on um, previous laboratory measurements as well as um, uh, several other previous papers, is that the distinction between uh, what I'll call hydroxyl or OH and water as H two O in the spectrum is ambiguous. And so if we are to interpret this absorption, is it due to water or is it due to OH? Uh, I'm not sure we can tell at this point without, without doing quite a bit more supporting laboratory work. And so whereas we used to have this loosely bound migrating water that was forming dynamically in the lunar environment, the, the alternative interpretation that we're offering up is that this could easily be OH, hydroxyl, instead of water, and is present everywhere at all times of day and is stuck on the surface. So if, if it is hydroxyl, one thing that it tends to be is, is more, uh, uh, more strongly attached to the lunar surface in terms of uh, it's, it's, it's bound to the, the, the soil more strongly than, than water tends to be. And so if you wanted to free that OH from the surface, it requires quite a bit more energy to do so. And from, a, from an in-situ resource utilization point of view, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, now, whether or not there was enough water to begin with, even if it was H2O, for it to be useful, that's, a, that's, a, that's another question. And that was sort of uh, implied in the, in the last question, which was maybe the poles are where the highest concentrations are known to be due to the ice deposits, might still be the best place to go from a resource utilization point of view. But uh, even so, whether it's OH or H2O, that implies differences in terms of how it forms. It implies differences in terms of how strongly it sticks to the surface and how easy it is to to extract from the surface. Um, You have an email from Baker. Okay. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he says, um, 
Forgive me because I am not a chemist or a geologist or a scientist, but I'm very interested in this subject. Would you please take a couple of minutes and explain for us amateurs or just interested folks the actual difference between a hydroxyl and water? Why do you use the term water for both if they're not the same? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, Water has become sort of a shorthand for referring to OH and H2O just in the sort of the community. Um, I I tend to agree that it, I think it, it, the distinction between the two is important and lumping them into one thing is, can be unfortunate in terms of um, what it implies because, because, because of what I've been saying is that OH works differently in, than H2O in terms of how easy it is to extract and uh, from the surface, for example. So uh, the difference in a lot of ways is H2O tends to retain itself as a molecule, and, you know, it's this physical molecule. It happens to be charged, and so it likes to stick to surfaces. However, those the, the bonding to the surface, if you will, tends to be quite weak, and so it's easy to... Uh, to drive it off um, via just heating up the surface a little bit, for example. And so if I had water on a lunar surface, and uh, that water would very would stick to the surface of the moon at night, but it tends to get driven off during the day. At night, the lunar surface is about 100 Kelvin, so 100, de- 100 de- uh, degrees above absolute zero, whereas during the middle of the day at the equator, it can be up to 380 Kelvin. So it's above the boiling point of water on here on Earth. Um, so it, H2O water will basically stick more weakly to the surface than OH hydroxyl. So if I have OH, OH tends to have, well, is, is basically very strongly charged, and so that oxygen combines with the hydrogen but is left with an additional uh, I don't know how to put it as a, a bonding point, if you will, and can be more strongly bonded to the surface. And so it requires more energy to free it from the surface as well. So that's kind of the basic difference between the two. Um, I'll caveat all of that by saying I'm also not a chemist. I'm only a geologist. Um, and so I've, I've picked up stuff along the way and obviously have had some chemistry um, experience, but I'm sure a chemist would could give you a much more complete answer than I did. If we looked at a at a glass of H2O, and a, could you also have a glass of OH, and would they look different? A, a glass of OH, I think, would probably explode. Um, it would be very reactive. Um, so, okay, so now this will be my question. It, help me understand why it would be reactive. It's because of that that free charge, if you will. So, uh, basic. If you go back to the sort of chemistry 101. Oh, oxygen has a, a negative two charge, and hydrogen has a plus one charge. And so, if I if I bonded two hydrogens to one oxygen, those charges balance out and cancel. And so, you know, when you have oxygen and hydrogen, um, you essentially have rocket fuel, right? Right. You, you heat it up, and they'll they'll the hydrogen bonds with the oxygen, and it releases a lot of energy in the process. Now, if I had a glass of just pure OH, I have oxygen, which has a negative two charge, 
and hydrogen, which has a plus one charge, and now I'm, I'm not balanced. I have overall a negative one charge, and it's going to go looking for something with a positive charge to bond, to bond with, um, and will do so very energetically and very rapidly. Okay. Um, so they're not really the same thing. No, um, other than they're made up of the same atoms. And <laughs> there's, there's some relationships between them, but, yes, they're not the same thing even though we keep on calling them both water as a, like I said, as a shorthand, that's not very accurate. Um, in, in your opinion, is, um, is there sufficient water for um, supporting large numbers of people living on the moon? I, I mean, people talk about lunar halves and settlements and there's abundant water and we're also going to do manufacturing and making rocket fuel and this, that, and the other. Is, is there really that much water there, and is it a finite supply, or uh, is it somehow being added to or supplemented? It's, I think it depends on where you are on the moon. So if, via this process where we're, we're talking uh, the water that we're detecting close to the equator, or at, at least at lower latitudes, it's, it's seriously very low. Um, we could be talking... You know, a couple of tens of monolayers of water, of water molecules on the surface. And I, I, I don't, not sure quite how accurate this is, but I think it conveys, so what it conveys is accurate is, I, I think I remember a study where they talked about it in terms of, you know, a football field might yield a pint of water. Um, so it, that's extremely low. Um, even if I'm off by an order of magnitude, it's still extremely low, and it's not going to support a great deal of, of activity on the surface. Now, if, if you go back up to the poles where we have these deposits in these permanently shadowed regions, I, I remember the caller said something along the lines of 5 or 6%. Um, and, and even if it's – I'm not sure we've got that nailed down that precisely, but it's not that far off. And once you're up around, you know – at even a couple of percent trapped within the upper couple of meters of the surface across uh, what's thousands of square kilometers, now you've got quite a, uh, quite a, uh, a resource. And that's, that's a much, much larger volume of material and much easier to extract and probably could, could support um, a, a lot of in- infrastructure, I would say. So, but uh, is it being replenished, or once it's used, we're diminishing the supplies? At the poles, it's not going to be, I mean, this is what's collected over the past several billions of years, um, and, and it will replenish, but not anytime soon. Um, you'll have to have a geological perspective on that in order to wait for it to replenish. Um, so, so once it's used up, it's used up. Yeah. Now, the lower latitude, even though it's in very low abundances, that is something that that is constantly being generated. Um, I don't think I understand quite well exactly what the rate is, but certainly less than billions of years, but it still might be on the order of, of hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, you have an email, if I can find it. Here it is, from Bjorn in, in Sweden. This is the one I read to you before the show started. About half of the moon's crust consists of oxygen, how much difference does it actually make 
whether the oxygen is in water or in mineral oxides? Is it worthwhile going into eternally shadowed craters at the poles to get oxygen when it's abundant everywhere? Yeah, and I, I think that's actually a, it's a good question. Um, and this is once again caveated with the fact that I'm not, I'm not the world's most experienced chemist, but in general, rocks, rocks are made up of what are called silicates generally. Uh, there's some oxides and other things present as well, um, but mostly it's silicates, which is composed of silicon, oxygen, with smatterings of calcium, magnesium, iron, and, and other compositions or atoms. Now, the silicon and oxygen are bonded extremely tightly. Um, so in order to free that oxygen from the silicon uh, requires a, a huge amount of energy. So once again, it's not, not dissimilar from this OH-H2O problem where H2O is a lot easier to free from the surface than OH is. And in this sense, the oxygen um, trapped in the rocks is much, much harder to free than even the OH. Um, so it require, I guess what I would call prohibitive amounts of energy in order to do so. Um, beyond that, the chemical process itself might be quite complicated. That I'm, I'm not very familiar with, but just from a, an energy perspective, it would require a lot, as opposed to um, freeing the oxygen from the hydrogen and water um, can be done pretty simply just via electrolysis. So all you need is some solar panels and electrodes in order to do so. Um, your your take on um, habitats and lunar settlements and uh, colonies or villages or cities uh, and getting lots and lots of people there over the years, uh, in-situ resources going to be sufficient or are we going to be feeding the moon inhabitants with a lot of supplies from Earth for decades to come or centuries to come? Um, I, I don't know if I can say anything with certainty about centuries, but I, at least initially, I, I can't imagine getting a lot out of the moon besides some of these simple things like, you know, water for oxygen and rocket fuel um, in, the, in the permanently shadowed regions. And even then, it's it's not a not a permanent resource, as we as we talked about. Um, and you've got the rocks, um, or just the surface materials, which is the silicates, and that's I'm useful for building materials and whatnot as well. Um, but and I'm no expert, but it's it's really hard for me to imagine a situation where um, you have a self-sustaining, um, uh, I, I don't know, habitat um, anytime soon. Um, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps being a pessimist about this as well. Um, Carl is in Tucson, Arizona, and he says, um, if we um, look at your paper, and especially for those of us that are, are not scientists, um, can you sort of summarize and give us the takeaways of your, of your research and of your paper that, that you and your uh, associates wrote? Yeah, the the summary um, would be in order to look at the spectral data to interpret the water feature, which is this three micron absorption. It's necessary to have a very detailed understanding of of the temperature of the surface. Once you have that understanding and and 
come up with a correction for the temperature, that yields a very different distribution of water or OH across the surface than the previous re- the previous work has has shown. And so that's the takeaway: is is that when you look at this from a I guess what I'd call a thermophysical perspective, um, our, our understanding of the distribution of water changes quite a bit from a lot of the previous high-profile papers that have been published. Um, so you have uh, another question, sort of a fo- sort of a follow-up from that. In that, uh, Todd is in San Diego, and uh, Todd says, so uh, assuming an active colony that grows over a number of years to I don't know how many people, but arbitrarily, say, 50 people, and they're active in doing things on the surface, doesn't then their activity add to the problem of the distribution of water? Because more and more lunar surface activity is now happening that wasn't there before, so you need to start including that in your error calculation. I, I guess that's that's probably a true statement. Uh, here's an example of of just how many little things need to be considered. Um, uh, let's say we had fifty people on the fifty people on the surface, and um, it was common for them to go out and walk across the surface. Now, when they're walking across the surface over time, they will more or less compress the surface. That you know, once again, that the Neil Armstrong boot print, and that will vastly change the, the thermophysical nature of the surface, which will in turn vastly change the temperature of the surface, which will in turn vastly change the way in which we need to correct for that temperature of the surface in order to understand whether or not there's that 3-micron water absorption present. So um, I, I guess the short way of answering that is, yeah, it, the more human activity occurs on the surface of the moon, the more it gets altered, and that's not going to... Uh, processes on the lunar surface happen so slowly that that, that surface is not going to be back to normal or quote-unquote normal for a, a very, very long time. And so if, if there are enough people on the moon to essentially affect things as little as how the soil is is compressed with with walking on the surface. The larger the area covered by people, the more this is going to affect things. Yes. Then that brings me to a question, uh, which maybe you can answer, maybe you can't. Um, the former NASA planetary protection officer, Cassie, who has since retired, used to tell us on the space show that the moon was not really a focal point of planetary protection, that, that uh, they didn't see much chance for life there. So they're more interested in Mars and maybe Europa and Enceladus and, you know, something on that order. But now if uh, astronauts and civilian astronauts and, and humans are on the surface of the moon in a couple of habitats, maybe in some kind of significant number, although don't ask me to define what the word significant means here because I have no idea. Um, They could be altering, boy, it's hard for me to say altering the lunar environment, but I don't have a, a vocabulary that can say that again. I'm not even sure this is a lunar environment, 
but it seems to me that people living and working and doing things there can alter the moon. So does this mean that the moon should undergo some kind of uh, special analysis before launch licenses, lunar plans, lunar habs, lunar colonies are put on the moon, uh, like the, the, the European moon village, if, if they ever get around to doing something like that. That would particularly alter uh, the moon, given the kind of activity that they anticipate. So does that need to be weighed and considered in, for lack of better terminology, a lunar environmental impact report, or do we just roll the dice? Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a great philosophical point to bring up at this point, um, which will become a practical point quite soon. And even, even now it's actually a little bit in that we are, we've at least tried to detect the thermal changes that have occurred at the Apollo site, for example. Right. Um, it, I, I guess the first thing I'll say is it comes down to personal opinions about this, um, and I, I definitely have my own in that I, I actually am concerned about this in that I don't, I don't like to see these surfaces altered with, before we've had a good chance to, to study them in detail. And, now, if And here I thought I was hitting on something new that nobody was talking about. Oh, I, you know, I, 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 maybe I'll bring up an example from, uh, from Mars where we have these rovers and they leave these tracks on the surface. Uh-huh. that are going to be around for a very long time. Um, now, how do you define long? I, I'm not quite sure what the, what the answer is, but well beyond human lifetimes is what I would say. Um, and so, you know, when you only have a little bit of exploration going on, like I would argue we have today, you could argue it's, this is pretty insignificant and it's not something we need to worry too much about. Um, or you could be a, an, a, take a more... Uh, extreme approach, I guess, would be the way I'd put it, is say, like, no, we don't want any of that to happen, and we should only be studying the planets from orbit, for example. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at some point, this this is going to at least become an issue and become more and more concerning to people, at least as we sort of increase our exploration into the future. And I, I remember, um, this was a while back, but there is, uh, somebody started talking about a proposal for essentially dusting the lunar surface with very small amounts of, of material that could either darken the surface or make it more reflective. And it doesn't take a whole lot, but, you know, here's a worst-case scenario is you can literally turn the moon into a, a, an advertising billboard. Um, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So... Who's in charge of these things? Who's considering these things? Should we consider them, and to, to what degree? I, I think those are all good questions, um, and, and I kind of find it an, an interesting subject. Because uh, nobody who's talking about going to the moon is really talking about protecting the lunar surface, for example, or, or some. I've not heard those issues discussed, but uh, yeah, it's not. Certainly, I don't know of anything, at least terribly official. Um, I, but perhaps another way of, of looking at it, too, is uh, say you take the Apollo landing sites or the Lunacod rovers or Chang'e 3. Um, uh, when we go back to the moon to these sites, do these, do these sites, which are 
you know, I guess early milestones in lunar exploration, do they get preserved or or can somebody go off and just go trample around Apollo 11, for example? Well, there is a robust discussion about protecting lunar heritage sites. Okay. And uh, some people define lunar heritage as the Apollo landing sites. Others, like like I've had people on from the organization, and unfortunately, this is one of my senior moments. I I forget the name of the guest. Who's a great guest. She was a great guest. I really liked her, and I forget the for all for all moon kind. Michelle Hanlon. Yeah, Michelle Hanlon. So for all moon kind. So um, she wanted to expand lunar heritage protection to more than just the Apollo sites. So nothing's resolved on that. There is a very uh, robust discussion about that, and I'm coming across it all the time. And what's more impressive to me is I see Michelle's board of directors, including classic, no regulatory, pure new space, commercial space people from, like the Space Frontier Foundation that that I recall from several years ago. So. Many people are evolving and getting involved in a lot of these different issues, and so maybe what I brought up uh, won't be so far-fetched by the time we're ready to actually move people to the moon. But you do have a caller on the phone, and I think the caller is Kim because she was helping me with my failing memory. Uh, Kim, is that you on the line? Welcome back to the show. Yes, it is, Kim. Uh, thank you for uh, the for the memory lapse assistance. This this will be your your new job on the space show to stop me from having senior moments. Uh, go on, you're on the on the line with Josh. Hi, Josh. Hi. Um, I was looking at the, all the graphs you have in your paper, and uh, it made me wonder about the fact that the instrument used seems to cut off at three micrometers, um, and I wondered about that design of the instrument, and if that was an issue, is that an issue in your analysis? Uh, that is the design of the instrument, and it's it's very frustrating that it cuts off right there. Um, it, it was not designed for for necessarily fully characterizing this water feature. Um, it, this was a bit of an unexpected result that came out of the the, the investigation, um, which was quite surprising. Um, there have been other uh, other spectrometers that go out to longer wavelengths. Um, there's uh, the old uh, Deep Impact spacecraft, which was renamed the Epoxy Mission, um, uh, also took some measurements, and it goes out to much longer wavelengths. Um, but it only took a very limited set of measurements. And so um, it, it, it's been a bit frustrating in, um, in that, you know, we have one instrument which, which collected a great deal of data under varying conditions, and then we have this other instrument which has the right wavelength coverage, but only took a limited uh, limited set of data. So um, it, we're kind of compromised in uh, either way, one way or the other. Um, yeah, that's a pity. Um, I, I also uh, just sort of scanned over your methodology part of of the article. Um, and uh, the, the word ray tracing jumped out at me. And I wondered about the, the modeling that you're doing. Is this uh, based on relatively new um, kinds of software that you can do this with? And what kind of computational power were you talking about for this? It, it was, um, it's literally about one screen's worth of code. Um, the ray tracing was, okay, so 
the importance of the ray tracing was to to simulate the the surface roughness because we need to know what surfaces are sunlit and what surfaces are in shadow. And so, if with the ray tracing, I can I can characterize where the shadows fall on which surfaces of what orientations, and that's you know statistically really important for for modeling the surface temperature. Uh, the software I wrote is uh, I use a a program uh, called DaVinci. It's very similar to MATLAB or IDL for those who are familiar with those things. Um, it's very, very slow, um, but I only needed to do it once in order to build a, a series of, look, of lookup tables. So it's not at all sophisticated, and um, it's probably quite embarrassing if, if I ever showed it to a, to a real programmer. So that's, that's what I've used. Uh, uh well, it's, it's a very interesting result. Does it have any implications? I, I take it it doesn't, but um, uh, does, this have, does this relate to, at all to the flux of hydrogen, or is it just really just what sticks, what bonds in the surface? Because I wondered if it had any implications for for the implantation of, of helium on the surface. Uh, implantation of, of, sorry, of what? Of helium. Oh, um I think it might, but this is uh, the, the the solar wind and the physics behind it are are pretty well outside of my expertise. And so in that case, I'm I'm not going to stick my neck too far out. Um, uh, one thing that we're trying to get at, um, I, I've been talking with a, a real chemist as opposed to a fake chemist, which is what I would consider myself. Um, and we have the uh, the samples. And so one thing that we can measure is the isotopic composition of the hydrogen that's in the, say, the Apollo samples. And um, the isotopic composition can can point very directly to whether or not um, this water is, is coming from a solar wind source versus, say, what I termed magmatic water. So there's some, some things that we can do in terms of... Um, where this water is coming from, trying to nail down specifically the process by which it formed. But uh, beyond that, I'm not sure I can say much of anything about um, how this relates to the the helium-3, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, thanks for your answers. Thank you for the call, Kim. I appreciate it. Uh, listeners, there's still time if you would like to give us a call, and it is one. Eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Carol is in Seattle with an email, and she said, "I'm a little bit confused. So let me see if you can clear up my confusion." In a way, I sense that if you were the lunar dictator of development, you might say, "We need to delay going to the moon with people." in order to get more research and further our understanding. Is that a correct assumption I'm making on how you might see some of these situations and problems? Uh, I guess I would, no, I I don't think so. Um, But it's something that I feel like we should have some dialogue and consensus about before necessarily... um, going headlong into the exploration part of things. Um, so, you know, for example, I, I, I don't think we're in danger of, of completely trashing the lunar surface anytime soon. Um, 
but I, I want to make, I, I guess if I were the lunar dictator, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I'm not, I would, I would definitely want to make sure we had that conversation before things, uh, before the exploration starts snowballing into a bigger and bigger thing. Uh, and so I, I just don't want to, I just don't want that aspect of things to get sort of lost in the enthusiasm of the rest of the exploration. I guess that would be the way I'd put it. Um, so what are the exploration options? Are there mitigation strategies uh, to, to avoid trashing the lunar surface once you start having a lot of people going there or a lot of missions going there or maybe even robots going there because, you know, a robot has some mass and could trash the lunar surface too. Right, uh, and that's a good point. It doesn't have to be human exploration that, that does this. And so it's, this isn't a human versus robotic exploration issue necessarily. Um, I, I, at some point, I think it's worth considering limiting the areas in which we, we um, I, I guess what it, the way I'd put it is touch the lunar surface. And so um, I, I don't know what those would be. I haven't thought this through. But I, I think that would be a starting point is considering um, uh, limiting the, the scope of the surfaces in which we're directly sort of contacting. And uh, how would that be enforced? I have no idea, <laughs> or whether it's even enforceable. Um, uh, I think it would. I think it's once again it comes down to building consensus, um, and so that that uh, presumably entails bringing you know all the interested parties into the dialogue, um, and that that gets into more diplomatic things than, than necessarily. Perhaps less scientific. But one of the things I see happening is as the capability gets closer to being reality for the private sector, and maybe the government, you never know what the government's going to do, but for the private sector for sure, as um, that capability to go there uh, starts to uh, fall into place, and once it starts falling into place, we all know it's going to fall into place more and more rapidly. They all want to go to the good spots, just like Doug calling about, you know, you know, the poles. They have the water. Let's go. We want to go to the poles, or they don't want to go to places that aren't going to be top prime real estate, right? They they want to go to things that Sotheby's is selling for a trillion dollars a square foot. So um, you're going to have demand from those who want to be on the moon and use the moon and develop the moon to go to where the action is, so to speak. So the best places are going to be consumed first, probably. Yeah, and uh, that's where I, I guess I would say is, you know, for example, from a you know, planetary protection point of view. Ah, that's a horrible word for people on the space. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, I, I mean, if we go back to over to Mars, like I, I, I think we need to be talking you know, involving SpaceX and these conversations when it comes to planetary protection on Mars, and not necessarily. This isn't. This isn't a. We need to tell them what they have to do. It's more of a. They need to be brought into the dialogue so that everybody can can essentially talk about this to try to get on the same page about what is important, what isn't necessarily important, and how would we go about this. And so, you know, for example, you know, do we uh, do we extract all the water from every permanently shadowed area on the, in the lunar poles, I, I would hope not. Um, but are we going to prevent people from going there at all? I don't think so. 
And so there's there's a compromise in there somewhere between not touching it at all and extracting everything. Um, so it, 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 I, I'm not sure where that point is, but it's got to be somewhere in between those two. Um, it will be interesting to see how all, all of this sort of starts to um, to unfold, and um, will the capabilities of uh, all of those with capability be uniformly treated and applied? Like, will uh, somebody here in the United States, uh, you know, be uh, limited and and have? Uh, uh, some kind of due diligence put to them the same as someone maybe from Italy or or from uh, um, India or something like that or Russia or China. Right. You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's going to be interesting to see some of it unfold. Um, our friend in Sweden has another pe- question for you. Um, Vijorn says, uh, when large water ice comets hit the moon in ancient times, what happened to the water they brought? Did it all evaporate and leave the moon, or was it embedded into the surface? Number two, does hydroxyl OH have another distribution and frost line in the solar system that water does? Yeah, uh, I'll start with the with the cometary impacts. Um, when a comet impacts the surface, um, it basically any water will vaporize more or less instantly. Um, and by far and away, most of that will be escaped to space. It's hot enough and traveling fast enough that it, each little water molecule will achieve escape velocity and, and more or less be lost forever. However, some of that water, some small fraction, I don't know what that fraction is, will uh, essentially be gravitationally bound and will hit the lunar surface. And if it's hot, it will get driven off of that surface again and then hop again. Um, sometimes it will achieve a velocity enough to escape. Other times it doesn't. If it happens to hop and land on a very cold place, it will stick. And so that's one way in which you can accumulate over a very, very long time the water that we see at the at the lunar poles in the permanently shadowed regions. So, And it's not just uh, comets. Uh, asteroids actually have uh, can have a, a quite high... Uh, water content, I, I think up to something like 10%, um, which is uh, fairly considerable. Um, and so that's comet and and asteroid are uh, a, a potential source of water for the moon, especially eventually making its way to the lunar poles. Um, and the the next question, which was about the OH-H2O frost line. Right. Yeah, I... I'm trying to think. I don't think you would necessarily. OH isn't a material that sort of sits on it on its own. It's it's always attached to something else, and it can attach more or less strongly to other things. And so OH doesn't necessarily have a, a sublimation or a melting point like water does, like H2O water. Um, and so there's no uh, I, I, no real frost point for OH. Um, you can kind of think of OH in terms of whether or not it might be stable at the surface, and in that case, that that point at which it's stable on the surface is at much higher temperatures than, say, water can be, for example. So OH can attach to, to silicate materials, and it will stick there even at temperatures of hundreds of degrees. 
Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's quite right to call it a frost point, but the point at which OH is stable is generally at much higher temperatures than that of water. This is a complex topic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I've, I've found this study to be extremely challenging. Um, I'm coming at it from, a, I know, thermal infrared measurements, the thermophysical modeling, and then you have to take it over and, and deal with the spectroscopy, the near-infrared. You have to make the interpretations, which requires this knowledge of, of chemistry. And there's also the solar wind. Um, it, it's, there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, and I, it, it's been a challenge for me to keep track of it all as well. Uh, are any additional um, beneficial research missions uh, headed for the moon to provide more data? Can Earth-based telescopes provide more data in this area? Um, Earth-based telescopes, um, I'm, I'm working as uh, part of a project to use the um, Hawaii Infrared, infrared uh, Telescope uh, facility to uh, acquire measurements near 3 micron in order to try to kind of get at this, this water problem. Um, I don't I don't know of anything right now in terms of a spectrometer that's off to the moon in order to um, uh, characterize this 3 micron band better, but it's definitely uh, on people's, I, I guess, list, if you will, of, of wants in terms of instrumentation that they want to put on, on in the orbit. Um, and, and then one other thing is for the laboratory measurements are getting... Um, uh, Incredible is the way I'd put it, where we're kind of literally counting individual atoms. Um, and in that, in that sense, we've gotten much, much better at, at characterizing these, um, the samples that we've returned from both the Apollo and the, and the Soviet Lunokhod missions. Do you, uh, there's a lot of talk about, uh, returning to the moon and the National Space Council has mentioned it and all of that. Do you, uh, advocate a, a policy of returning to the moon, or do you like this uh, kind of deep space gateway, or whatever they call the new name of it, uh, idea where they make uh, robotic, you know, lunar missions to the surface, and humans don't go there for a number more years? Uh, do you have a, a preference um, in in how to carry out the lunar exploration? Well, it, it, I think the answer to that. About ten levels above my pay grade. <laughs> so the way I'll put it is, I'm a remote sensing guy, and I I tend to enjoy working on those problems. Now, um, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be going to the moon, but I, personally, I feel like we can learn a lot without necessarily sending people there. And that's not at all saying that we shouldn't send people there. It's, it's just that the work that I tend to do and get most excited about doesn't necessarily require humans. Um, but that you know, is there's a lot of there's a lot of good reasons to send people to the moon just from a, a scientific exploration point of view. Um, and and so I, you know, I if we are sending people back to the moon, I'd be excited about it. That's the way I'd put it. But not necessarily professionally excited. Um, and uh, Bijan has one uh, final question. Listeners, this will probably be the the last question, but if someone wants to sneak a call in, go ahead and do it. One eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. So his uh, question is: 
what are the main differences and similarities between water or hydrogen in lunar craters compared to in the polar craters of Mercury? Oh, and yeah, that's um, they bear a lot of similarities as far as we understand. Um, one of the big differences that we've that we've seen is um, they've. Uh, I can't remember what they used. It might have been Arecibo, but I could be wrong about that. But um, essentially, they've they've bounced uh, radar signals off of Mercury and gotten this, uh, as far as I understand, quite a nice return off of the signal, which was a pretty. Uh, it seemed like to, it was a pretty strong indication of the presence of water. And while there's, I, I don't think there's a lot of question about whether or not there's water in the lunar craters that in the lunar craters as opposed to the Mercurian craters. But the radar measurements have not been nearly so definitive. And so from the remote sensing point of view, there's this kind of weird difference between Mercury and the moon um, in terms of those water deposits. And and I don't think we're, we fully understand what that means. But like I said, I don't think there's much question about the presence of water. It's just something in terms of its concentration or how it's buried or, or some other property that we're not fully understanding. It always leaves us saying we need more research, right? <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> more research means more money. <laughs> need more funding in order to find out the answer to this question that we that we found out from the last round of funding. That's right. There doesn't seem to be an escape from the funding requirements. I mean, you can escape Earth's gravity, but you, you can't seem to get, get away from the Earth from the funding requirements, can you? Yeah. I, the, the more positive way of spinning this is, I mean, the more we learn, the more we realize we need to learn even more. Um, there's a lot of questions that come up when we answer the initial question. Um, what is next for you? Are you going to be tied up with studying this paper and, and its analysis for the next hundred years, or do you have an, other projects going or a book that you're writing? Um, the, gosh, the thing that's been interesting me a lot is, is the parallels between what we see on the moon versus that we see on, on other what I'll call airless bodies. And so I, I work on the Mars Odyssey mission, which has been in orbit for a very long time now, but we've just take, acquired observations of of uh, Phobos, uh, and I'm also a newly assigned participating scientist on the OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu, and we're, we're collecting similar measurements on all three bodies. And so, one thing I, I'm really interested in is, is understanding if this, you know, if this water formation or the OH formation on the Moon is via solar wind. That process should be occurring out on Phobos and out on Bennu as well. Um, and so I, I, I want to understand sort of how this compares between these three bodies, and if there's differences, what might they be attributed to? Do you know the answer yet, if it's on Phobos and Bennu? I don't. Um, we'll be approaching Bennu this uh, late summer, early fall, and uh, the Phobos data we've just acquired in the past few months, and I'm still in the process of even just trying to make sense of it. So that'll be a paper down the road or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's lots of work to be done. Do you teach students? I do not. Um, so you're I, research only? Yes, yes. Okay. Do you advise students or anything like that? You don't work with students at all? Yeah, I was uh, faculty at the University of Washington 
um, up until a few years ago, and I, I still advised students up until recently. And then I'm, I live out here in Boise, Idaho, and um, I'm occasionally on a, on a committee of uh, students, often uh, geosciences department there. I, I enjoy working with students, but um, it's not my primary role. I, I just wondered if they get excited with these subjects and topics and this kind of research, or do they go to something maybe more glamorous? I don't know. Uh, I think it's like anything. You, at least the way I went into it is, I when I first got excited about planetary science, it was you know these sort of big exploration questions. We should go to the moon, and that's great, and we should go to Mars and find out if life ever happened. But you you realize that the the topics that you can address are these you know little chunks that make up the big the big picture, and you can only handle the little chunks at a time. But as soon as you start getting into the details of the little chunks, they start to get, um, I guess, fascinating is the way I'd put it. Well, this has been uh, delightful chatting with you, and, and I hope we get a chance to talk to you some more uh, about the moon and, and even Mars. I, I imagine uh, we could spend several hours with you talking about a whole different slew of topics and, and issues that might concern exploration both robotic and human and and some of the uh, i don't know if i want to say misunderstandings but maybe um we have a a more simplistic understanding of in-situ water resources than uh, is justified uh, both for the moon and mars so that that might be something worth talking to you about down the road yeah no i i could I could talk at length about a lot of things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, been really great meeting you, and I, I thank you for being uh, a guest on today's Space Show program. And uh, listeners, thank you for calling and also for your emails. And, uh, again, we have a, a full week, and uh, make sure you read the paper from Astral Politics from our Queensland University guest who's on tomorrow evening uh, about, uh, in a short shortcut term academic bias um, but the paper is much more involved than that and it is available on the blog I give the download instructions it's on his website at Queensland University in Australia um, Josh this has been a real uh, honor and uh, pleasure to talk to you and I look forward to more space show programs with you down the road and we'll stay in touch with you okay excellent thanks for having me thank you and again everybody thanks for participating goodbye from uh, josh dr banfield myself and all of you